The Charles Adler Show starts now. So at the risk of, I guess, offending and even possibly, this is really risky business, possibly alienating many people who listen to this, watch it on a regular basis, The Charles Adler Show. Uh, In case you don't know my perspective on this, I have to let the cat out of the bag. Regardless of how many places I've worked and regardless of the fact that my eyes are always on the entire country, the entire planet for that matter, Alberta is by far the most interesting place on the planet for politics. And one of the people who uh, covers politics better than anyone I know and has the capacity for just fabulous human conversation, maintains a a sense of humor, isn't just a smart guy, he's a guy who um, can laugh, a guy who has a life outside of uh, academics, outside of politics, has been a, a lacrosse coach for a long time, and his name is Dwayne Bratt. Professor Dwayne Bratt is also the author of Blue Storm, The Rise and Fall of Jason Kenney. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, Danielle Smith. We'll talk about some of the interesting controversies, and there's a controversy in Alberta politics, it seems, every hour, but we'll talk about some of the recent controversy around pensions. I never thought in a million years I'd be talking about pensions on this show. Generally, it's a boring subject, but Albertans don't know how to be boring about uh, pensions because some of this plot, as it were, is about looting some of the, the Canadian pension plan. I don't think it can happen, but it's just another interesting uh, story, part yarn, uh, part real, uh, coming out of the bowels of Alberta politics. Professor Dwayne Brad at Mount Royal University, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Charles. Very happy to, to be on your podcast. Just to clean, a little, uh, clean the ice a little bit here before we do anything else, when you first uh, imagined yourself writing the book Blue Storm, uh, part of that, I guess, is because of the, the, the PC Blue, the UCP Blue. Part of it is because of the that uh, that pickup truck, the blue truck that uh, Jason Kenney drove around uh, for a while in his uh, heyday, as it were. Uh, when you wrote the book, my, my, my inkling is that you didn't think that there'd ever be a decline. You just, just, just like me way back when, you imagined that he could be premier for, for as long as he wants to be. Well, so the Blue Storm came about as a sequel to a previous book called The Orange Chinook, which was about the uh, NDP victory in 2015 and the first three and a half years of the the NDP rule. So Blue Storm was going to be sort of the second half of the same story of the the return and reemergence and revitalization of the conservative movement in in Alberta, um, orchestrated by Jason Kenney. And so we never anticipated he would be gone before the 2023 election so much so that the final authors workshop where we were fine-tuning the the chapters this would have been june of uh 2021 um no one on that call uh, none of the other contributors ever imagined that he wouldn't be there And, and he was going through some leadership issues at that time but in 2019, I would argue he was the most powerful conservative in the country, uh, much more so than, than Andrew Scheer, who was the federal leader at the time, much more so than Doug Ford, the leader of the largest province. It was Jason Kenney. And so how he went from that height to being pushed out by his own party, I think is a fascinating story. Was your first uh, sense, your, the first warning shot that uh, Jason Kenney uh, might not be a lifer uh, when he melted down like an ice cream cone in July on my radio show? 
Uh, I mean, that was, um, I mean, he still won the election. We, we talk about that incident in, in the book. Graham, Graham Thompson writes the, the chapter on that, the 2019 election. No, it, it didn't phase me at that point that he might be in trouble. It was really um, Aloha Gate. Um, for, for listeners outside of Alberta, Aloha Gate has taken on a, uh, um, a level of, of interest. And this was in December, January 2020 and 2021, so Christmas time. And we're still in the midst of COVID and a bunch of cabinet ministers from the Kenny government all traveled to Hawaii and Mexico, his chief of staff included. And he had a very defiant press conference on January 1st. How often does a political press conference occur on January 1st? So New Year's Day, he is defiant saying, I take full responsibility. These people did nothing wrong. Um, we actually have nothing really uh, ashamed for this. Uh, there's nothing against the rules. And there was such a backlash. Kenny united the province from the left, the right, the center. We're all outraged. Within two days, most of those ministers had been demoted or punished. But Kenny never made the apology. He sent out uh, poor Rick McIver and Tyler Shandro, two ministers, and they had to apologize on behalf of the government and announce all of this. And the contrast between the fire and brimstone, I won't back down, you know, this is the way it is, to two days later, uh, capitulating on all sides, but not doing the apology himself. I thought we may be into something here. Help us with this because we're often uh, confused. And, you know, you're talking to a person who was a, you know, well-known conservative voice, thought of that way for a long time, and I thought of myself that way. So help us understand why some uh, conservatives and possibly some others, but in the last number of years, it's the conservatives that have really um, occupied uh, the attention on this one. Why is it that people who can be successful for a number of years, as Jason Kenney was, in the conservative movement, why is it that all of a sudden it seems they've got a, a tin ear, that they they have a, a poor sense of how the, the public see th sees things? I guess essentially the question becomes, how can people who have done so well, uh, focused on reality and interpreting reality, how can all of a sudden they, they come across like people from some other planet who 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 don't really understand reality on this one so i've obviously given that a lot of a lot of thought and um i've, I've come up with sort of three partial answers that maybe combined uh, prov provide an answer kenny may be an example of someone who was a very good number two uh, I used to always use the example of, of Paul Martin Jr., who was a very effective finance minister. Um, but once he got into the big chair, once he became prime minister, you know, he just was flailing left and right. He would always have, you know, 101 number one priorities. And, and you know, he took a, a juggernaut and, and ended up going to a minority and then, and then losing to, to Stephen Harper. Kenny was a very strong lieutenant to, to Stephen Harper. Uh, but once he got in the big chair, you know, could he handle that? So that's one possibility. The second is um, he faced a massive crisis and he didn't know what to do with that playbook. Um, so that would be COVID. So uh, in the early days of COVID, my current research project is actually looking at the politics of COVID in, in Alberta. 
I think Kenny handled it very well. You know, he temporarily threw away the ideology, threw away the playbook. Uh, we're all in this together. But within about two months or two and a half months, he went back to the playbook. And that playbook had said, we are going to cut the wages of doctors and we are going to cut the wages of, of nurses. That's what we promised to do. And so, yes, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we're going to cut the salaries of healthcare workers. That didn't sound very smart to me. So it was like um, he couldn't pivot. He couldn't adjust. He, he, he had an organizational chart he, uh, that he couldn't move off of. It and really felt, third, but part, I don't mean to interrupt, but I remember that very well. And I remember that was the first time in, even though I had the, the flare up with him on the radio show and all that, that was the first time in, in my life where I decided the man is truly irrational. Uh, in a pandemic to be cutting the wages of nurses and doctors is the equivalent of having a really bad cough and deciding to razor blade your throat. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it was a symptom of a larger problem uh, with, with Kenny, in which he, he took a, a great advantage of his, which was organization, um, planning in advance, but a failure to move off that plan once events uh, transpired. So obviously COVID was, was even worse, but I think it was, it was a sign of this, this problem. And I think the third is he was able to rally up a lot of anger. Um, uh, within the base of support, within the conservative movement. Um, and he, he thought he could control that anger. He, could, he thought he could control those people. And those same people that he riled up to oppose Rachel Notley and Justin Trudeau turned on Jason Kenney. And it shows some of the danger of this firebrand uh, rhetoric, uh, throwing red meat to your base. Um, they can turn on you as well. And, and if you've ever driven back and forth between Calgary and Edmonton along Highway 2, one of the fascinating little side things is, is the billboards uh, that the farmers and, and oil people put up on the side of the road. And the one I always remember was, you know, Jason Kenney threw more Christian preachers into prison than China did, oh, no. which, of course, is, is, oh, is ludicrous. You know, it was three guys uh, who all were defiantly violating COVID regulations, but it gives you a sense of that anger that Kenny had harnessed was now against him. So I think it's a combination of those three things, Charles. Is is anger the aphrodisiac of the right-wing movement? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and you, you see this not just in um, Canada, um, not just in Alberta. Uh, I think you saw it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to touch on this on the Manitoba election. Uh, you're definitely seeing in the United States. I mean, the whole rise of Donald Trump was based on anger. We've seen this in other European countries as, as well. We've had left-wing populist movements, but they were not as anger as those right-wing populist movements are. And, and so there's an anger machine that needs to be fed and constantly with the, the outrage of the day. And so I think if you were to take a Venn diagram and look at the people that believe that climate change is a hoax, um, that believe that COVID is a hoax, and believe that the teachers are grooming your children to be trans and gay, it's the same group of people. It's just the new outrage of the day. And there are politicians who know better, who know better, who are ramping that up for their own short-term political um, uh, stakes. And then sometimes, as Kenny found, they get turned on by that same mob. 
So, I mean, this isn't really new when it comes to uh, how mobs can, can can turn on you. It's not really new that, that that most politicians really can't control the anger because the anger, after all, so much of it is is irrational. So the idea of trying to reason with the rational is is something that is is not really a formula for long term success. Why, why don't politicians, especially people like Jason Kenney, who have done a great deal of reading of history, why can't they figure that out? I think there's a combination of factors. One is electoral um, motivations, where they feel that they need these people um, to, to succeed in politics. They need them to, to win a seat. Uh, they, they need that, that percentage of, of folks. Uh, and then the other is, I think, a bit of hubris the belief that they can control them, that yes, they're gonna let the uh, the lunatics into the asylum, but they can control those lunatics until of course they, they can't. Uh, and there is a time and a moment to just to say, no, you're not welcome in this, in this party. Uh, I think one of the, the gifts that has happened to the federal conservatives, ironically, was the formation of the People's Party of Canada, you know, that, that took a bunch of those people out of the out of the system, and then I saw a bunch of the by elections uh, in the spring where it looked like Polyev was trying to bring them back into the fold, um, and particularly in southern Manitoba, which I think is it may come back to to haunt him, uh, but uh, we'll we'll have to see. So it's is it elections? Is it about making sure those three to four percent of people vote for you? Uh, and is it a combination of hubris that you're so smart, you're so organized, you'll you'll be able to take care of them, you'll you'll give them a few sops, uh, but uh, in, in the end you'll you'll control them. All right. So a few months ago there was an election in Alberta, and the Conservatives won. A few hours ago, because we're doing this interview just uh, hours after the polls closed in in Manitoba, a few hours ago there was a Manitoba election. Conservatives were in power, but Professor Bratt in Calgary, they're no longer in power. What's the difference between Alberta and Manitoba? My apologies if this is the easiest softball you've ever been playing. <laughs> There's a tremendous political culture difference between Alberta and Manitoba, and a lot of that stems from wealth. Alberta is an incredibly wealthy place. Manitoba is not. Um, and um, if you look at the election in here in Alberta in May, it should not have been close. The Conservatives should have won that handily because the default voting option federally, provincially in this province is to vote Conservative. I mean, we had a 44-year Conservative dynasty. You know, you can count the number of non-Conservative MPs on, on one hand. Uh, so that's the default option. And the second was we were rolling back in the money again. We were running $10 billion surpluses. And so when times are good and you can spend in education, you can spend in healthcare, and people like to vote conservative, at least partisan conservative, I don't think we're necessarily ideologically conservative, it should have been a, a cakewalk for the conservatives. And it wasn't because of doubts around Daniel Smith, serious doubts about Daniel Smith, her judgment, her competency, uh, who she surrounds herself with, and she lost the city of Edmonton unanimously, and even lost, even lost the city of Calgary. Uh, but she was helped by a large rural base. Um, Thirty-seven out of uh, forty-one 
seats outside of uh, Edmonton and Calgary, the UCP one. So I think that kind of explains the, the Alberta situation. Manitoba, if there is not a more centrist place in this country, I don't know where it is. And I don't just mean geographically centrist. Uh, it's geographically centrist so much so that it could go in the CFL's East Division and they go back to the CFL's West Division, right? Um, they alternate power between the NDP and, and the Conservatives. And both parties, both of the major parties, tend to be center-left, center-right. Not more extreme-right, not more extreme-left. We've had eight years of Conservative rule in, in Manitoba. We had 17 years of, of NDP rule. And if you want to call Gary Dewar a radical left-wing socialist, you might want to talk to Stephen Harper, who respected Dewar so much that he appointed him ambassador to the United States. What changed in Manitoba, I think, was, A, it was the traditional election cycle, right? One party's in power for a while, then the other party comes in. Um, Brian Pallister was not popular. Uh, if he had stayed, it would have been an even bigger drumming. Heather Stephenson tried to right the ship. She was still sagged with the, uh, the baggage of Pallister. The difference with Smith and Kenny is Smith was never part of Kenny's cabinet. Smith was the outsider. Stephenson was in Pallister's cabinet. So it was tough to run from that ghost. And then I think the Tories ran a bad campaign, uh, a vicious, a mean campaign. When your number one pledge is, we will not search the landfill for murdered Indigenous women, and that's the that's the centerpiece of your campaign. I think that's uh, they were either so desperate that they had to throw something out there or what, but they deserve to lose after that campaign. And the the attacks on Wab Canoe, which uh, were personal at him, but also uh, were I think aimed at a much larger group than just Wab Canoe. You know, so you're talking about look at the criminal record of the indigenous leader of the NDP. And we have a major crime issue in Winnipeg where there's a lot of indigenous people. Don't tell me race was not part of that attack on Canoe, but Canoe handled it brilliantly. And that speech he gave last night, that was a remarkable victory speech because I've seen a lot of victory speeches and it's usually let's thank the team. This is for the people. He got personal and he reached out to Ashnabi indigenous youth. He, he mentioned other youth, but Ashnabi indigenous youth saying, if you get into trouble, if you've got addiction issues, the government is here to help you, but you have to take some personal responsibility. It was a redemption speech last night, and I thought remarkable. He said something last night that uh, conservative speakers have spoken uh, for, for years, and I was uh, stunned, actually, that he said this. He said, uh, Professor Brad Wapkanu, uh, speaking specifically to Indigenous youth, he said to them that you've got to make a choice and you've got to stop making excuses. That's, you know, tough talk. If a conservative has said the same thing, it might be taken differently. But Wapkanu had the moral authority because he's got the life experience, not to mention the DNA, to be able to say this. And Wapkanu said, this is now the premier-designate of, of Manitoba. He'll be the very first First Nation provincial premier in this country, so he's making history. And Wapkanu, in his victory speech last night, said that he had to make a choice years ago to stop making excuses and to start giving himself a reason 
to right himself, to start giving himself a reason to get on the right road. And for that, it meant for him, he wanted to connect deeply with community and with family. And to do that, he had to stop making excuses. As you say, a remarkable piece of history last night in Manitoba. And I think you're right. We've heard lots of conservative leaders talk about um, personal responsibility. But coming from someone who had gone down that road, who had gone one way horribly, um, you know, had spent time in jail, had done some atrocious things and completely turned his life around, gave him the moral authority to be able to speak to, to youth. Um, and in particular, Indigenous youth, because we do have over-incarceration of Indigenous people in this country. Um, Manitoba probably has the highest percentage of Indigenous people uh, in, in Canada. Uh, we have over-representation in drug and alcohol abuse, and there's a whole litany of historical and psychological factors for that. So because of how he turned his life around, he is standing on stage, not just as another politician, but as the first First Nations premier of a province who would travel down that road. When he talks about, as soon as I stopped making excuses and started to take personal responsibility, my life changed. That carries much greater weight than anyone else. So anyone who says representation doesn't matter needed to watch that speech because representation mattered, not just from the person speaking it, but the people listening to that. And so I can imagine being a troubled 14, 15 year old um, in, in indigenous male who may be on the verge of going uh, on the wrong side, that carried a lot more weight than if it had been a 55 year old white man. So. so Professor, I don't want to introduce religion, but I'm one of these people, I don't know whether you agree or disagree with me, that, uh, you know, civilization has been religious uh, and religious people have been leading civilization for so long that even though right now we're living in a relatively secular era, their religious values have uh, transcended and they become essentially mainstream values. And one of those that I'm talking about with reference to everything that's happened here in the last few weeks in Manitoba is redemption. You don't have to be a religious uh, Christian or, or Jew or Muslim to, to believe in the power of redemption. What stunned me uh, during the, the, the PC campaign, during this campaign, which, which I felt was looking like the creation of moral degenerates, what stunned me was the idea that redemption could not exist when it comes to indigenous people. Wab Canoe does have a record. He does have a police record. He does have a criminal record. For the record, here, he has been pardoned. But it stunned me that the conservatives would go so hard. There are bus benches everywhere. The bus benches, of course, are, are still around. They, they haven't been taken down yet. But bus benches all over Manitoba saying that a Wab Canoe government will deliver to Manitoba crime, violent crime, violent crime even worse than now. So it just seems to me that the, the people who designed that campaign forgot about something. Most people do believe in redemption. Most people believe that Wab Canoe is a glowing example of redemption. But I don't understand how people who get paid to transmit a message to as many people as possible, in some cases uh, wanting to 
uh, press the buttons of social conservatives wouldn't understand that most people, whether they're social conservative or not, they like a comeback story. And trying to squash someone who's making a brilliant comeback politically isn't very smart. No, Manitobans were not electing 20-year-old Wabkanoo. They were electing 40-year-old Wabkanoo, who had been pardoned and had turned his life around. I think it was a sign of desperation. I think it was a party that knew it was going to lose, and they tossed the Hail Mary. Um, and, and you can see that in multiple ways, right? The attacks on canoe, the uh, stuff around the landfill, and the bizarre TV ad that came out and said, don't be ashamed to vote conservative. You know, you're, you're in the, it, it, they, they, it, they were implying that to vote conservative in Manitoba during this campaign, you'd have to be ashamed. But don't worry, no one will know. Like really, they, like that's they were, they were informing I, the voters that they had a, they, 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 they were telling the voters they had a secret ballot. Thank you very yeah, much, conservatives. Didn't yeah, it's didn't too know early that. to tell, but it is possible, Charles, yeah. that that negative attack might have saved the PCs from an even bigger defeat. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm just speculating here. I mean, it was 33-23. You know, it wasn't 40 to 12 which it could have been. So I do wonder if it was the campaign was able to hold together some of that conservative coalition and make the loss less narrow. It's hard. Uh, or, it's, hard or, yeah. or it's possible. It's, 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 it, it, it is possible, but it is, um, you know, we'll have to crunch all the numbers and, and, and do a lot of interviewing on this, but it is possible that conservatives not only some in some cases chose to stay home because they were so turned off the campaign I can tell you anecdotally, this one's just dropped dead easy for me. Uh, many conservatives actually went all the way and voted for the NDP. I mean, I wasn't one of them. I was um, ashamed of the campaign. Uh, this was, you know, the conservative family has been my family in Manitoba for for the longest time, just as Alberta conservatives were my, my, my family in Alberta. Uh, so I couldn't uh, see myself voting for the NDP. I've never done that here, and I didn't do that this time. But I did vote uh, for the Liberals because I believe in voting, and I couldn't vote uh, couldn't vote PC, and I I couldn't uh, I couldn't vote for the NDP. That's what I did. I have no idea how every every uh, small C conservative, you know, did what they did with their conscience. But my my guess is that some conservatives did actually go over to the NDP. Well, we'll find out later uh, whether or not your your theory is correct that the negative campaign saved them from an even bigger calamity. But but I will add a caveat, an extra caveat that I think is important here. Um, even if even if I'm right that they may have wanted a couple additional seats by doing that, mm-hmm. it was morally wrong to run okay. a campaign like that. And those types of campaigns live well beyond that election. And I don't think they were thinking long-term. There was a conservative strategist, not in Manitoba, who is comparing this to the federal conservatives' barbaric cultural practices hotline of the 2015 election. That incident, that story did not die in 2015. It continues to haunt the federal conservatives in multiple elections. And that may be one of the uh, prices that the uh, provincial conservatives will pay by running this sort of scorched earth campaign What's going to happen four years from now? You know, what's going to happen eight years? Does it continue to to haunt them? 
The Observer who said that, uh, David McLaughlin, uh, he uh, has worked for a number of administrations. He actually worked for the Mulroney government when he was a young uh, wizard. Uh, and then uh, later, he uh, went to work for Brian Pallister. Um, David McLaughlin, the person who said this, uh, Dwayne, uh, someone that I'm, I'm positive you'd have a, a wonderful series of conversations with uh, for, for the work that you do and, and possibly uh, uh, have him as a, a visitor uh, to, to one of your classes. doesn't matter to me whether he did it in, you know, whether he landed in Calgary or, or did it on, on Zoom or, or what have you. McLaughlin's got a very, very brilliant mind, and he was the strategist, the key strategist uh, for uh, Brian Pallister in the two very large election victories. So he, he knows the country, he knows Manitoba, and I think he does know what he's talking about, and I, I think that's why it's important that you you bring it to this table. This is the kind of negative tank campaign that tarnishes the brand and might affect them for, for several uh, elections to come. I want to get uh, back to Alberta and your own uh, backyard. Uh, Danielle Smith has been mixing it up uh, lately, confronting uh, people right across the country. I mean, she's, she's been good at uh, confronting Trudeau, and I guess to some extent that's worked for her, especially in rural Alberta. But now it seems she's confronting the, the people of Canada because everybody in Canada is involved in the CPP, the Canadian Pension Plan. And, and Danielle Smith seems to feel that Alberta uh, deserves a, a big chunk of it. And if they do develop the Alberta Pension Plan, they're going to be looting the money from uh, Canadians. I'm not saying that it's, it's it, I'm not saying that it'll actually happen. I see it as a fantasy. But to, if, you, if you will, give us some background on, on, on why she's concocting this very bizarre elixir. So the idea of pulling out uh, the Canadian Pension Plan and creating a, a separate Alberta Pension Plan is not a new idea. It probably goes back to the uh, famous firewall letter that was written to Premier Klein in 2001 by a group of, of conservative thinkers in, in Alberta that included um, Stephen Harper before he became prime minister, Tom Flanagan, who was a campaign advisor for um, Harper, uh, Ted Morton, who would later become finance minister provincially uh, for the Conservative Party, um, Ken Boosenkuhl, a prominent conservative strategist. So these weren't dumb people. These were insiders, um, and they proposed this to Klein, and Klein rejected it. Um, he did uh, create a parliament, uh, legislative uh panel. They did some uh, road shows across the province, and the people hated the idea even more than, than Klein did, and so they ditched it. Fast forward to 2019. Uh, Jason Kenney is Premier of Alberta, campaigns against Justin Trudeau, not just in the province of Alberta, but he travels to Winnipeg, he travels to Brampton, he travels to Mississauga, campaigning actively against Trudeau. Trudeau gets wiped out in the prairies, but pulls out a minority government. And so there's all this anger at Trudeau. There's some quasi-separatist sentiment. And so Kenny pulls the pension plan back off the shelf, and he creates this fair deal panel about greater Alberta autonomy. We're going to create our own pensions and our own police force and our own um, revenue uh, collection agency, and we're going to pull out of equalization, and we're going to do this, 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 and this. Um, and so, and then Daniel Smith, uh, when she runs for the leadership of the UCP in the summer of 2022, says the same thing, we're going to pull out of the Canadian pension plan. So 
This idea is popular among certain conservative thinkers in the province of Alberta. Um, it is it, it rises to the attention when liberals are in office federally and they need a stick to, to bash the federal government. But in every poll for over 20 years, it is really unpopular amongst Albertans. Um, and uh, it, it ranges in support between 20% and 40% approval. So I don't know if I would go out on a limb to support a policy that's been consistently rejected by the people. But Smith has a plan. She has an idea. And that idea is we're going to give, we're going to create so much money. We're going to say that we get 53% of the Canadian pension plan assets, and which is so much money that we'll be able to lower your premiums, Charles, and we'll be able to give you greater retirement benefits. And when you retire, and I think you've retired two or three times already, but when you finally retire, <laughs> we'll give you $10,000 too as a bonus. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I think this whole exercise is about trying to change public opinion. So they, they commission a report, says they get this amount of money. They create a survey instrument that never asks you if you want to pull out of the Canadian pension plan. Instead, it asks you, which would you prefer, Charles? Do you want lower contributions, greater retirement benefits, retirement bonus, or all of the above? Well, that's kind of a rigged, <laughs> rigged question, right? Uh, you know, it'd be like asking a five-year-old, do you want cake, cupcakes, or pie? Vegetables aren't on the list. Um, and so the question is, can they fool Albertans? Well, but can they, uh, but can they fool Canadians? I mean, what would happen? First of all, I guess, where does this 53% number come from? The idea that uh, Albertans are, if they go on their own with their pensions, would get 53% of what's in the, um, you know, Canadian cookie jar. How do, how, do, how do they come up with 53%? And what would happen? This is a process question. What would happen if they actually tried to get their mitts on more than half of all the pension dollars invested in the Canadian pension plan? So the first thing I'm going to say is what the report said, and then I'm going to give some background on past Daniel Smith. Um, so the report said because the actual legislation that created the Canadian and Quebec pension plans in 1966 had an exit clause, but it wasn't written very well in how you would um, divide up the assets. So they said in the, the, the literal interpretation of the act, Alberta would be entitled to 118% of the assets. And then they said, well, that's obviously ridiculous. So we're going to use an alternative interpretation that only gives us 53%. Doesn't that sound much more reasonable? <laughs> that we'll get 53 instead of 118. <laughs> to to Albertans, that, it may sound reasonable, but yeah, I can't imagine uh, it sounding reasonable to anybody outside of Alberta. Uh, others, like uh, the, the economist Trevor Toome, has said, you know, there's, there's other possibilities. Like, how about Alberta gets 16% because that is the percentage of contributions that Albertans have paid into the CPP. And he says, even if you look at the differential around retirement benefits and, and the wealth of Albertans, maybe we're entitled to 20%. But that's a big drop. That's, you know, $150 billion difference. Um, so that's where they got the number from. 
in the press conference in releasing the report, Daniel Smith says, I never realized how much we were entitled to the Canadian pension plan until I read this report, which sounded like you could just see the premier and dad reading this going, oh my God, except we have a newspaper column written 20 years prior with her talking about what a big percentage of the CPP assets Alberta would get. And then we've got her on video in 2021 and 2022 using almost the same numbers that are in the report. Um, so either she predicted what was in the report or maybe nudged the report writers in, in, a, in a direction. Um, this is, she was very careful and very disciplined, and she can be very disciplined uh, in the press conference not to go after Trudeau not to go after the federal government, not saying that this is leverage over electricity or oil and gas emissions. She said this is just about getting greater pension benefits. This is only about pensions, not these other factors. Um, and then someone asked, well, what do you say to the premiers in the rest of the country, you know, that you get 53%? I mean, Ontario is four times the size. Surely they would get more than 53%. And then Manitoba, poor Manitoba, you would have to pay us to leave. Um, she just said, well, we're tired of subsidizing the rest of the country. So this isn't just about pensions. This is about delving into a sentiment that somehow Alberta um, subsidizes the rest of the, the province. Dwayne Bratt, I can't thank you enough for, for the delightful visit. want to wish you uh, continued success with with Blue Storm, the book, The Rise and Fall of, of Jason Kenney, and we'll do this again soon. Okay. Thanks, Charles. Dwayne Bratt is a professor of political science and an author. He's at Mount Royal University in Calgary. I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for telling your friends and for subscribing, for following the Charles Adler Show podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.